Welcome to Elevate. I'm so happy you're here with me today, and I cannot wait to share this episode with you. As an evidence-based coach, mentor, and entrepreneur, I'm obsessed with learning and personal development as it's transformed my entire life, as well as those I get to work with. And to be quite frank, it's literally the entire reason this podcast exists, to feel your growth, gain perspective, and acquire knowledge. So buckle up, friends. You're in for a treat. And as always, thank you for supporting me and the show so we can continue to elevate our own lives as well as those you share this with. Now, let's get into it. What is going on, guys? And welcome back to another episode of Elevate. So today's going to be a little fun one. I get asked about my journey quite often, but I never really get into the weeds of it. And so today I have client Danielle, who's phenomenal going through her own journey. And we will be sharing that at some point down the road on the podcast, but she's had a lot of questions about me. And I said, look, let's just jump on a podcast. I'll answer all of your questions and uh, I'll fill you in. And I think this will help you guys understand me a little bit. Also, it might provide some perspective and support for you guys on your own journey. That's that are struggling with different phases of overcoming some obstacles or emotional sticking points or self-limiting beliefs as you go. So Danielle, please introduce yourself for those who are not familiar with you and then we'll just dive in. Yeah. So I'm Danielle. Um, I live in Minnesota. I'm married, have four kids and just working on my own health journey. Amazing. Amazing. And uh, for moms out there, it is totally possible, even with many, many children uh, that you're rendering all day, every day, uh, you can still prioritize yourself. Just a side note, it's important for you to not forget that you exist as well. But Danielle, we'll just dive in. Uh, so any questions, we can start from anywhere. Yeah. So one thing I want to know is like, when did you like have your aha moment, like, and realize that you wanted or needed to make a change? As far as which phase of my journey? Oh, yeah. Sorry. So like when you were in the depth of like your journey in competing, like you were completely shredded, right? You were doing competitions, mm-hmm. like kind of what was your aha moment if you had one that you wanted to stop what you were doing? So I, I remember this very, very vividly. I went to East Carolina University to visit my sister and my whole family went. My parents, my brother was there. And my dad at the time was like 55. And I remember we were walking around East Carolina and it was their homecoming weekend. So there was people everywhere getting ready for the football game. It was a really fun atmosphere. And I couldn't keep up with my dad walking. Like my family was probably 30 yards in front of me just walking around and they weren't doing it intentionally, but I did not have the energy to move as fast as a 55 year old man walking <laughs> around a college campus. And I remember in my head, I was telling myself the story about like how my family was just ashamed of me and they were mad at me and they didn't want to be around me. And like, I was creating my own by, by that narrative. And then in the aftermath, I kind of sat down with my mom and I expressed that feeling. I was like, well, I just felt like nobody wanted me around. Like you guys didn't walk with me. And my mom was like, Kate, we were literally walking so slow to try to walk with you. And you just like, didn't keep up with us. Like I'm genuinely worried about you. And that was the first kind of idea that I was like, okay, this is not a personal attack. This is the, one of the outcomes of the decisions that I had made that was impacting my health. And then down the road, I had ended up in the hospital a couple of times because 
coaches that I had had didn't want me to have any sodium. So I wasn't getting electrolytes. And so not only was my performance in school suffering because I couldn't focus, concentrate very well, but I would um, not be able to like contract or flex. Um, and then I would get really, really lightheaded. And then I would essentially um, go hypoglycemic. And so I ended up in the hospital a couple of times. And so I ended up, my mom ended up taking me um, to the hospital and we went up to uh, Dartmouth Hitchcock and I remember sitting there with a cardiologist and he was like, look, I don't know if anyone's been this honest with you, but I need to tell you that if you don't stop what you're doing, your heart is going to give out. And at that time, I think my resting heart rate was like 33 beats per minute. Like it was very, very, very low. And I remember at this point in my life, um, for those who, who want some context, I had torn my knee. Um, and in my basketball career, which was like my whole life and my identity as a kid, I got into a, in a, a relationship that ended up being very, very, very abusive. And in, in getting out of that, I like, while he was gone, packed up my car, took what I could and started driving North. Like that was, that was how I got out. And so I was in this very uh, shameful, I carried a lot of guilt. I had been raised to tolerate better. Um, I don't want to share my mother's story, but she had been in some very toxic relationships. And so it wasn't that I didn't know better. And so I, I carried a lot of shame around, like, how could I represent my mom appropriately? Like she raised me to be better than this. Uh, my brother, who was like the father of our household, because growing up, I didn't really have a present dad. And like, he was like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, you've made a mess of yourself, like all of these things. And so I internalized a lot of that stuff. And I just, I didn't feel good enough. And I still struggle with this a lot in my life in different arenas and complexes. But I started exercising in the extreme manners as a means of self-harm. It was more of a way for me to express the anger of hatred that I felt towards myself in a way that taken to the extreme, like over-exercising and, and chronically under-eating will obviously have its have its impact. So I remember sitting on that hospital bed and the doctor be saying that to me. I, at that point, was like very numb in my life. Like every night I went to bed, and this is going to sound really bad, but I would just go to bed and be like, I don't care if I don't wake up tomorrow. I hope I don't wake up tomorrow. And like, I didn't care if I lived or died, but I remember in that moment, and shout out to mom for, for being there, but uh, I remember looking up at her and she, her eyes, and I have her eyes and um, very, very green. And when, when she cries, they get very, very green. And I remember looking up at her and her eyes were just full of water. Like she couldn't stop me. She didn't know what to do. And I looked at the doctor and I was like, look, and, and if you don't know this, when you're dieted down, like super severely, you blink slower, you talk slower. Like if you guys go back and watch like my old YouTube videos, you can tell that I'm like, just slower in speech and not as quick on my feet. And um, I remember looking up at him and just being like, look, I don't care to be here, to be honest with you. But I can't do that to her, my mom. Like watching her break in front of me. Like I'm sure behind closed doors, she was worried and terrified and, and had her moments, but she's, she's a very strong person. And so I don't necessarily see my mom get emotional very often like that. And I was like, tell me what I got to do. Tell me what I got to do and I'll do it. Not for me, but for her. And so that was, that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back was, was seeing someone that I loved more than anything in the world be in that amount of pain from an action that I continued to pursue. 
And so that was probably those in combination. They were very close in timeline back to back was really like, okay, this, this can't go on. Sure. Um, so with that being said, like, what was your first step? Did, Did you, I mean, you didn't like go to a treatment center or do something like that. You did it all on your own. Did you get a therapist? Did Great questions. So, um, the thing about me is I'm, I was smart enough to know what I needed to do. I needed to just like a lot of people that are trying to lose weight, people know what they need to be doing. It's the discipline to overcome the level of resistance and the discomfort in order to do the thing that, you know, you need to do. And so that was when I really leaned on my mom for support. And so I told her like, I know what I need to do. I obviously need to not wait. I used to wake up every single morning at 5 a.m. I go to the gym and I would do 90 minutes of cardio. I would then train for at least an hour and then I would sit in the sauna for 30 minutes. And so every single day I was spending, yeah, a lot, a lot of time on top of that eating maybe a thousand calories a day. And so I knew I needed to increase my dietary intake and I knew that I needed to pull back on exercise. And so, you know, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to start pulling back. Um, I'll be at the gym these days per week. And this is what I'm going to do. And so she was like my accountability buddy. Like I'm telling you what I'm doing. She would make sure that I was eating. Um, and slowly just like, I had to force myself to not, to not do the things that I knew were harmful. And I didn't cut it cold Turkey. It wasn't like I just stopped working out or stopped doing that, but I was more intentional about I need to make sure that I'm eating enough. I need to make sure that I'm pulling back on the cardio that I'm doing. I loved training. So I kept doing that, but not to the amount of volume that I was doing it. I was doing like 12 exercises in a workout and like four sets of each until complete failure. Like I was just running myself into the ground. Um, and so that's, that was fundamentally like where I started was like, just, and I say this all the time to people is, is focus on the promise of one making one better decision that day. Cause if you do that over a long enough time horizon, you've made a lot of really good decisions that are in alignment with where you want to go. And so that's what I did. What one small thing can I tolerate doing that's going to bring me closer to kind of breaking away from this self-sabotaging behavior that I, that I've inflicted upon myself. And then through that, um, I did seek out therapy. I did not find my first therapist was not someone that I would say I connected very well with. Um, And so like that, I did not find that experience to be monumental, but I then got into kind of the depths of understanding myself and working through the emotions that I felt and being able to talk through them. Because as a kid, I played basketball as an outlet to a lot of the anger that I held for my dad, not wanting to be my dad and just feeling a little bit isolated. My mom worked a lot. She had three little kids. So like she did whatever she had to do to like provide for all of us. And my mom is the most incredible human I've ever known. So she sacrificed a lot, but in that it was the one outlet that I had to kind of self-express and like put that energy into something positive. And so I tried to get into the weeds of understanding myself and my mindset and my behaviors and why I was the way that I was and where that came from. And um, that's kind of what was the catalyst to my fascination and obsession with, with human psychology and behavior is, is if you can get to the depths of understanding your darkness, then you can start to control it and, and channel that energy into something positive. And so that was really my goal was to bring self-awareness without judgment so I could get the root of my problems and then choose to overcome them and shift my identity through that process. So that's kind of long-winded, but that would, 
that's what I would say was really kind of the foundations of how I pivoted out of out of that position. Okay. Did you ever have days or weeks even where you said you couldn't do it anymore and kind of like reverted back to old ways or have setbacks? Um, I think, of course. And this is where, like, I think that one of the biggest issues that I see with most people is that we hold external people's word and their promises to a higher standard than we hold the promises that we make to ourselves. I need to honor my word to myself. If I say I'm going to do something, I need to do it regardless of how I feel or if I want to, because I know that motivation or willpower, like all of those things are going to diminish over a long enough time horizon, especially in an environment that's uncomfortable. Stress is high, emotions are high, right? That's when we revert to the most comfortable things that we know, which tend to be habits that don't necessarily serve us, right? And that's due to conditioning or poor coping mechanisms or all of those things. So I was able to, and I know myself well enough to know, that while I wanted to, and I certainly had those desires to go back into old patterns, I promised myself that I wouldn't. And so it was really important to me to hold myself to that standard. If I'm going to be a person of integrity, then I need to do what I said I was going to do and follow through on my word, not just to myself, but to my mom. And so that bigger why in that aspect of holding yourself to a high standard because it's easy to do things that you know don't serve you or the person that you say that you are, or the things that you desire behind closed doors when you're alone. It's very easy to fall back into those things and be like, well, no one will notice or no one will see this. Um, but I would have, knowing myself, like I would have not, that wouldn't have sat well with me. I, I don't do well when I fall short of certain things, especially when I say I'm going to do something. If I don't do it to the standard of which I had set out to do, I I get very um, introspective in a very negative way. And so I I knew that once I said I was going to do it, that I would need to do everything that I said that I was going to do to the best of my capabilities based on where I was and my emotional kind of uh, level as far as that. And then my understanding of, of the knowledge base that I had then was just to continue to do one better thing and not overwhelm myself with trying to change everything, right? I didn't just say, I'm not training and I'm going to eat a bunch of food and you know, fuck the scale and and let myself go. Cause that on the other side of that, obviously there's a consequence to managing it that way. And so I had to meet myself where I was at and then set a tactical step-by-step thing of just doing one, but making one better decision. Even if I was in a very emotional state, very angry or had flashbacks or was just struggling with some of that trauma, like how can I release this energy into something that is positive and do it for something bigger than myself? Because at that point in my life, I didn't, I didn't see me as a person. I think a lot of us forget that we exist. And so I was in that way. And so I would I would look at myself as either a, a position of joy for my mother or a position of pain. And I could I can handle joy, right? When I make decisions, you, you've probably heard me say this before, is I always weigh the potential upside and the potential downside of any decision that I'm, I'm conflicted on making. And so the potential upside of that decision, right, was being a source of joy. The potential downside was being a source of pain. And I couldn't live with being a source of pain. So regardless of how I felt about what I wanted to do or it was easiest for me to do, right, when I weighed out the pros and cons of those decisions, whether it was like, oh, I'm just going to get up early and go do it anyways, right, or, oh, I'm going to, you know, not eat what I said I was going to eat or throw my plate away. Like, I could have done those things, but 
I know inevitably long enough if I kept that attitude up and continue to reenact those behaviors and solidify that negative feedback loop within myself, that it wasn't going to end up being a, a positive experience for the people around me. And I didn't want to be something that was promoting a negative, toxic environment for the people that I love the most to exist in. Sure. When you were going through this in the beginning, did you have fears? And if so, like what were they? I think, so I think initially I was so far, so depleted and so drained and so physiological, physiologically, I don't want to say disabled, but that's the word that comes to mind. It's just, I was barely existing. So there, a lot of that is just like, I felt dead. And so initially it wasn't necessarily scary because I was barely existing. It was kind of like, I started to feel better like cognitively, energetically. And so like initially the, the biofeedback was good, but then you get to this place where you're pulling back, you're eating more, obviously you're going to gain weight and those types of things. And I think there was a shadow of doubt of insecurity there, but I also knew it. And I still, you know, to this day, I've said these things to myself because I took, you know, last year off and I didn't really train and, you know, had to address my hormone hormonal health in retrospect of that time period in my life. So just know that there are, like I say all the time, there are long-term consequences to short-term stupidity. Um, and that is in reference of my own demise, but I, I struggled a bit and there were periods of time where I was like, maybe I should pull back. Maybe I should do a little bit more cardio or maybe I should do this. But I knew my body would not be in a place to even sustain a good homeostatic set point if I continued to fight the process of my ability to generate that environment. And so I had to focus on creating the short-term discomfort for long-term goals. In the pursuit of that, whenever I felt that moment of discomfort and those kind of negative thoughts or insecurities kind of pop up, I would I would frame it that way, knowing that I was making the choice that long-term I would be proud of. And so that's where a lot of my future frames come from. It's like, okay, right now I don't like this, but a year from now, five years from now, when I'm 30 years old, when I'm 50 years old, like what will I look back and be proud of? Will I be proud that I reverted back into poor habits that I knew wouldn't keep me healthy for my future family, my future children, um, the people that I serve, the things that I actually care about by focusing on my aesthetics? Or do I lean into the discomfort and potential weight gain that will come with this, knowing that on the other side, I'll be able to have kids and I'll be able to show up and be present and enjoy and have energy and clarity and perform the way that I like to perform, which for me, a lot of the things that I really enjoy are more intellectual. But when you, when your brain's not firing correctly, it's like, well, that decreases my personal enjoyment and quality of life. Cause I love reading. I love studying. I love researching. I love conversation. I love being able to have those things that challenge the way that you think and, and make you think kind of outside the box. And so for me, it was just reminding myself of the bigger picture and the more important things of life so that I could zoom out and realize that like, no one's going to care what I weigh or what size pants I wore when I'm on my deathbed and I look back on my life, but they will remember the type of person that I was and how I showed up and what I was able to provide for them. And so whenever I was able to kind of cater to those, those deep kind of conversations within myself, I could always choose the path, which I felt was correct for me, which is really continuing to invest in getting healthy again. And do you feel like you're there? Like, like healthy and you're happy with yourself and 
Yeah. I mean, and, and this is something that I think is super important is like, there is no aesthetic in the world that looks as good as having your health feels. And I say that from experience, cause I've been fucking shredded. I've been told I look great. I even gained weight, but I still wasn't internally as healthy as I needed to be. There were a lot of things that took a long time to get back to optimal for me, but there was a long period of time. Um, and there's still a lot of uncertainty for me as far as where my reproductive um, capabilities lie, which scares the shit out of me. But at the same time, like I wouldn't trade where I am today, even though, yes, I'm, I have more body fat than I would love. Um, I don't necessarily feel the most confident in a bathing suit, for example, but I also know that my quality of life, my ability to be flexible, I don't have to worry about what I eat. My body maintains weight very well, whether I'm over or under, you know, a certain amount of calories. Like I don't, um, my life doesn't revolve around food and exercise anymore. And I wouldn't trade that to go back to always thinking about my next meal or always being anxious about training or can I get in training? Am I going to be able to do that? Not hitting PRs, thinking about all of the things that people tend to hyper-focus on in the pursuit of chasing a weight or aesthetics. So in that, in that perspective, I definitely am healthier um, on every level as far as what relates to actual health, right? But aesthetically, there are things I would love to change. That being said, I also know that when the time is right and I commit to doing that, it will be a significantly more enjoyable journey for me and easier than it would have been if I tried to pursue that in the short term or too soon, because I I say this analogy a lot um, to people, but if you have metabolic or hormonal issues and you try to go into a fat loss phase, it's like driving across the country with your check engine light on. Like at some point it's not going to end well, right? And you will be disrupted in that, in that path, right? You're going to have to put in more effort then it should require you to, to achieve the goal that you have. And so I think while patience is a hard pill to swallow, uh, it's one that I've learned to kind of lean into and appreciate is like different paths and different seasons of life. And knowing that when the time is right for me to do those things. And I think it will probably be closer to like April this year. Um, I'll, I'll focus on, you know, really diving into improving the way that I look so that the way that I feel aligns with a body composition goal that I feel more confident in, but I'm certainly not insecure or I don't put a ton of value on my aesthetics either. I used to do that a lot. Um, but I, I appreciate the way my body is. I appreciate what it does for me. I appreciate the fact that I wake up every day ready and excited to do what I love to do, um, versus feeling like I have to chug a pot of coffee to like wake me up in the morning. There was a time in my life where I was drinking literally like a whole ass pot of coffee to get through the day. Um, So I found a lot of appreciation and I am very patient in knowing that I want to find out more about like how strong I can get, how far I can go, what energy systems I can optimize, what level of performance I can achieve and in tandem with that, ideally aesthetics improve with it. But if not, I also wouldn't be like my life or quality of life wouldn't suffer with that. Sure. And, um, like, do you think it's possible to be, I don't want to say like shredded, but to have, to be toned and to have muscle definition, like, can you have that and still be hundred percent healthy, like hormonally, mentally, can that happen? Yeah. I think that, well, I think this, this is very subjective to your idea of what fit and tone looks like. Right. Right. I would say I'm still very fit. Um, I would say I'm still toned relative to the masses, right? And this is where I think when you go through things like contest prep or disorder eating, and you've just been very, very lean or very small before, 
your perception of what healthy and fit looks like is forever skewed. So for me, I know, and and I don't mean this to be um, arrogant on any level, but I have to remind myself that even in the days where I look in the mirror and I'm like, oh my God, you look terrible. It's like, there are many people I've killed to look the way that you do. So it's, it's having that appreciation and understanding while I'm not the leanest I've ever been. And I'm certainly not the most lean I've seen my body in. Like I've seen it fucking shredded. I know what it looks like, right? So in comparison to that, well, I would say I've put on a good amount of, of weight, right? And I'd be like, oh my God. But in comparison to it, I would still say I'm still quite athletic and quite lean. I don't think my body fat is very high uh, or it's high enough to be optimal, but it's not too high to where I would be considered, you know, overweight or obese or anything like that. Um, but at the same time, I know many, many women and I work with a lot of women who are genuinely just healthy, fit, have good muscle mass, have great metabolisms, live a high quality of life, are very flexible in their approach and live in that. So I think yeah, the short answer is yes, you absolutely can, but it's also relative to the perception that you have of what lean and healthy looks like. Sure. That makes sense. And it's different for everybody, right? Mm -hmm. Um, One other thing that I thought of too was how would you say that you, because you coach people that compete still, right? Mm -hmm. So compared to how you were coached, do you not get those people as lean as like you were or like, what's the difference? So everybody metabolically is very different and the adaptation for everyone is also different. And so whenever I work with a competitor, I always have a quite a lengthy call before we start contest prep, typically discussing what I want them to understand about what's going to happen. I didn't know a lot of the adaptations that would happen. And you hear a lot of people talking about metabolism, all the hormonal stuff, which is great, but nobody really talks about the psychological adaptations that happen when you diet. And that can make you feel very out of body with yourself because you feel like something's wrong when your body is just adapting to be incredibly protective of what you're trying to do. And then it will fight you on that. So when it comes to the boundaries that I have with coaching, um, I have very specific boundaries on how far I'm willing to go, whether it's calories or cardio. Um, I would rather be flexible with a deadline. Now, as far as conditioning, I think that there are certain people that will take it too far. I, and you can, this is really the judge's criteria. So it's not something that I get to create. The goal is to get them to fit the criteria of the division in which they operate. So there are standards in which we do want to see as far as hip dips coming in, glute ham tie-ins being present, but getting people overly conditioned is never going to be a great thing. Whereas you can always peel off a couple more. So I tend to bring them in uh, initially, especially if it's a first show ever, I'm not going to get them fucking ridiculously shredded, but fitting the balance, filling out nicely, having good shape, good conditioning, um, but never to the point where it's detrimental to them in their relationship with self relationship with food relationship with spouse, family, those types of things. And so having those conversations on the front end for me is really important so that they know the expectations and what to expect going forward with the pursuit in which they want to go after. Um, and I also am very quick to tell someone when we need to pull out due to their own kind of health, physical, mental, or issues with their body's kind of response, uh, because I aim to be the person that I wish that I had. And if someone is truly looking at you for your best interest, they're not just going to dismiss you having a binge 
for you struggling with your body image or obsessing with the scale or doing extra cardio or cutting extra calories or not sleeping or getting fired from work or having arguments with your spouse all the time or all of those different things, right? There's more to life than that. So it's just having really close connections with my prep clients, being able to talk to them when they need that, uh, giving them perspective and educating them on what's happening and what's going on and why they're feeling the way that they are, or, you know, some of the changes that we see that happen as far as when you get conditioned and then some of the hiccups that happen with that as well. And just being able to, to set realistic expectations for the journey in which they desire to pursue and knowing the consequences and the downsides of that with the trade-offs that come along with any pursuit like that. Okay. I thought of something that I meant to ask you earlier, but through your whole process of healing and getting healthier, I'm sure with like competing, you get food rules, right? You make, when you were competing, were those... Mm-hmm. Like, were you able to fully break those or do you think you still have some of those? So this is a really good question. Um, and I, so I think this is actually a great topic of conversation is like, I think they're deemed in the disordered eating community as fear foods. Mm-hmm. So I didn't realize that I had them. Right. Um, there were just certain foods that I wouldn't eat. Like for example, and I'll remember this very clearly. I had a coach that told me, you are what you eat. So if you don't want to be fat, you don't eat fat. And that just stuck with me. Um, so I wouldn't eat salmon. I wouldn't eat red meat. I would not eat pork. I wouldn't eat anything that had fat in it. Nothing. I ate chicken, boiled chicken and green beans for like a long, long time. And, um, so I think coming out of competing, I just kind of was so habitual in my dietary approach, that I didn't realize that like, I wouldn't eat certain foods. And I remember I was actually uh, talking to my best friend, Jordan, and I, we were on the phone one day and I was like, you know what I realized? <laughs> like I, I wouldn't eat a burger. Like there were just certain foods that like I wouldn't eat. Um, and I didn't really have like an emotional response or like fear to them. It was just like, I just ignored them almost. So it wasn't like a, emotionally evoking response. It was more like it's off limits. So I don't eat that kind of thing, but it wasn't that I didn't want those foods. Right. And I want to be clear about that. It's not like, I don't think a steak is delicious. It's not that I don't think salmon is delicious. It was just like that. Nope. It it's the belief that I had or the subconscious narrative of like, if I eat that, it will make me fat because it has fat. So I'm not going to eat that. Right. Kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, in 2020, um, when I was in Dallas and we were chatting about this, I was like, I'm going to make sure that like, I want to break this belief or this fear that I have that if I eat this, I will get like, whatever that is, whatever that story, like I need to just give myself evidence as though that's not true. So for, I don't even remember how many months I would have either steak or salmon for dinner. And then I would eat like whatever it was. I was like, Oh, I haven't eaten that. So I'm going to eat it. Like, just cause I like, if it had fat in it, I was probably going to eat it. It was really carb dense as well. Like bananas. I didn't eat for a long time. And I fucking love bananas. Like there were just certain food choices that I would make because I knew too much about food. And I do think there's a point where, you know, way too much about food. Like I knew the exact macros calories for almost every food. So if it was super calorie dense, I just didn't eat it. So, um, I was intentionally working that into my diet on a daily basis. Um, and I was fine. And it was one of those things where it was like, now I eat steak all the time and salmon 
all the time and certain foods that like I wouldn't have eaten before that would, I would say would be deemed as foods I avoided for sure. Um, but again, I, it wasn't necessarily like a, a fear, like a true fear. It was just like not eating that. And then, yeah, now I don't, I, there's nothing that I won't eat except for foods. I genuinely don't like like bacon and cheese. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Oh, okay. So when it comes to competing, do you think or believe that most women end up with disordered eating? So this is a very interesting question. This is a super interesting question. Someone asked this, um, I can't remember who it was, but they were having this, this conversation around bodybuilding and there's this interesting relationship that you see, but we don't know if it's like a chicken or an egg situation, right? I'm not sure. Um, and this is their words, and I can't remember who said it, but it's not clear to me whether bodybuilding creates disordered habits or people that have disordered habits seek out bodybuilding because there is a relationship between the two but the direction in which it happens is unclear, right? So if you play both sides of that coin, like, yes, there's very rigid things that you need to do dietarily to achieve that level of leanness. Again, this is a very extreme goal. It is not a sustainable goal and it's not a high quality of life that goes in association with that. Um, So you will have periods of disordered eating habits with that goal, right? So that can perpetuate into something long-term that could be that. Or on the other side of the coin, it could be something that people that have disordered eating habits and tendencies that desire that control, it gives them permission to be able to enable those behaviors by existing in a certain culture, right? I don't know which it is, and I don't know how strong that correlation is. So um, I'm just, these are just thoughts that that come up for me, but it is definitely something I'm, I would love to see more, more research on. Uh, because I'm, I'm uncertain as to which it is as far as the chicken or the egg is concerned. Sure. I mean, because like bodybuilding or competing, I feel like became so popular, especially in women within the past, like even 10 years, I'd say, like, I feel like everybody's doing it or trying it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, it's like the new way to diet in my eyes or I don't know. I feel like a lot of women around here that I see everybody is wanting to do a competition. Yeah. And I mean, well, there's definitely this, this, there's definitely this push of like, Oh, you want to look great. Just compete. It's like, that is a solution to the dieting problems. But again, that is not a sustainable model or approach because it's a super extreme goal. You have to go to very aggressive levels to get shredded. I'll just give you an example. Um, at one point in my dieting contest prep career. I was doing three hours of cardio. I was on like 20 grams of fat and like 50 grams of carbs for like a long, long time. And so like that is not a quality of life that anybody wants to exist in, right? Like that is not something that you should even do to lose weight, right? If we're talking about healthy rates of weight loss, half a pound to a pound a week in a sustainable model, training, resistance training to build or retain lean body mass, um, you know, those are dietary approaches that are going to lead to a higher quality of life, not fuck you up metabolically, not give you psychological issues with yourself or food and not help have you fixating your entire life on your body image when there's much more experiences to be had and be able to be present in outside of your pursuits of, of health and fitness. So, um, while it is popularized and I think that many women, just like any other fad diet, it's like, oh, well, if I just hire a contest rep coach and I compete, 
I'm going to get to the body that I desire, right? It's like, well, that sounds fantastic. Um, you do have to weigh, just like any other decision, the potential downside of that pursuit. And there's a lot because it's it's a full-time job. I mean, it's 24-7 and you can't not have food. So you're always thinking about food. And then you pair that with these psychological adaptation and the drive to eat food when you're starving yourself. And that can be a recipe for disaster for a lot of people. So I think that screening should be something that coaches do thoroughly. Um, that's definitely something that I do and that our team does, but there are also people that will take you as soon as you sign up, when you walk through the door, you're going to pay them, they'll die you. And it's, it's not like there's a large barrier to entry there or thorough screening for a lot of people. So, um, I think it's just important to be an educated consumer with, with that type of thing. Sure. Do you think that you would ever want to compete again? Uh, I get asked this question quite a bit, to be honest, I will never say never. Um, but I do think it's something you kind of outgrow and I don't mean that negatively. And I'm certainly not shitting on people that like spend their lives competing. If that fulfills you and you're super happy doing it, that's fine. Um, for me though, again, there's a cost to doing that and repeated extreme dieting measures to my knowledge, don't necessarily do a ton for you as far as your health in the long term. And for me, my goals really are more focused on, I I love being an athlete. I like having the energy to perform and do well with my performance. And so getting more into athletic styles of training is fun for me, Uh, being and feeling like an athlete, being able to eat what I want, what I want, how I want, not worry about that side of it, just because I'm functionally fit and I can perform at a high level. That for me is significantly more fulfilling. It also allows me to show up to things that I find meaningful in my life and the future goals that I have. So outside of just running my business and, and helping this grow and nurturing my coaches, my team and my clients, right? I want to be a mother. I, I think that that's probably the most rewarding experience that you could ever have. And so in competing, you have to remember your reproductive cycle will shut down um, because you're not in a place to be able to carry a baby. You're barely feeding yourself. You definitely don't have the energy available to support uh, a fetus. And so when I think about what I truly want versus what I could just do or what might be short-term satisfying, um, I want to make sure that my body's healthy enough to be able to do that. And so competing for me, isn't really something that excites me or feels worth the, the downside of that pursuit, uh, given the context of my history. So I think that I will continue to pursue high levels of athletic performance. I just don't think that will be with the pursuit of aesthetics um, to that degree of, of extreme. Sure. Ah, one of, sorry. And now I feel like I'm going backwards again. Another question popped up that I should have asked earlier, but when you look back at your journey, what do you think was harder, like pulling back on exercise or eating more? Was one harder than the other or? Um, I think pulling back on exercise for me was really hard. And I'll say that because I, until I competed, I never had a relationship, like a bad relationship with food. I never was insecure about my body image. Didn't think I looked bad, like young, athletic, healthy, high performer, ate what I wanted, what I wanted, how I wanted, never had an issue with it. And I've always had an appetite. So like eating more for me was not a bad thing. I was like, okay, I can eat more. It was when I pulled back on training, especially in 2020, 2021, um, that 2022, actually that was last year, um, 
that was hard because my identity, my entire life had been that of an athlete. And so it was a really good thing for me to do because it allowed me to figure out how to manage my emotions and my stressors and find other creative outlets that allowed me to channel that energy into something productive that wasn't fitness related. So I, it was very difficult. And like, at first I fought it. I was like, nope, still, I won't train every day. I'll train five days a week. Oh, I won't train five days a week. I'll train three days a week. And then there was a point where again, I, I, had like chronic rhabdo. So like with blood work and such, I had high protein turnover that was quite chronic in all of my labs. And so I wasn't recovering because my inflammatory responses were also significantly high. Um, And so I had to just cut cold turkey in order to try to resolve those issues. And so that for me was very overwhelming. And I have to say, this is where having a support system is incredibly important because I remember calling my best friend, Jordan, and telling him that I had to stop training. And he was like, this is fucking awesome. I'm so excited. Like, it was amazing to me. My jaw probably hit the floor because I was like, what do you mean this is awesome? Like, are you fucking crazy? And he was like, no, you need this. This is so exciting for you. And then he went down a laundry list of all the things that I could continue to focus on and put my energy into and pursue that had nothing to do with working out or doing like, like hitch training and all that stuff. And it was really cool. For me, it gave me peace because he showed up right on time, like he he always does. And he had the right thing to say that shifted my perspective into a very optimistic one versus prior to that, when I first was told that I needed to stop training was very nerve wracking and emotional and fearful and pessimistic and, you know, all of the things that we can run our run through our brains. And so having that shift in perspective actually gave me a lot of peace and it was quite exciting um, and I really did enjoy it. The first 30 days were probably the hardest because I, I had to sit with myself in my free time and go, well, what do I want to do? What am I going to do? Right. And I still walked and I was still very active. So I wasn't like super sedentary or anything, but I focused on, can I move my body in a way that feels good? That's lower intensity. Started dancing. I tried jujitsu. Um, you know, I did a lot of different experiences with how I can move my body and how I can train in a way that's not going to be detrimental to my health or recovery. So from that standpoint, I think it was very scary for me, but also very empowering on the other side because I didn't blow up and I didn't gain a bunch of body fat and I didn't let myself go. Um, and I'm in a significantly better position with a lot more tools um, in perspective than I would be if I continue to just fight that process. That's awesome. Support is huge. I've definitely learned that and you've been that for me. You do need that. Aww. So thank you. You're very, very uh, welcome. Let's see if I have any other, I don't think I have too many other questions, but so now looking at today, how many days a week do you train? Right now I train three days a week as far as resistance training. And then I run four days a week. So I'm training for a half marathon. Okay. Before the marathon, you, did you have, is it 10 K or 10,000 steps you hit a day, right? Is that? Yep. And so when I was like, literally not training, I was just like, I'm going to take, I was like, what habits and behaviors do I want to continue to embody? So waking up, getting outside first thing in the morning, I really enjoyed set the energy for the day. So I would wake up, I would, you know, start my coffee and then I would journal. And then I would go for at least a 20 minute walk outside. 
And then by the end of the day, I would end my day with about a 20 to 30 minute walk. And usually that would get me about 10,000 steps. So I would just walk every day. I would take breaks, get outside, get some steps in. Um, but other than that, I focused on quality nutrition, expanding my palate, um, moving, sleeping well. Um, I tend to have, when I'm highly stressed, I used to work a lot. I mean, from like 6 a.m. until like 2 a.m. And I would just sleep and then wake and then do that over again. And I realized that wasn't allowing me to really recover. Um, so I needed to dial those things. And so I just put more intention and attention into my behaviors and then stress management along with focusing on how can I move my body? I would do yoga. I would do massages. I got massages for a long time, um, at least once a month to help kind of flush out all of the freaking knots that I had and all of the, all of the inflammation that was just kind of pent up, uh, did yoga. I focused a lot on that type of thing. So I just tried a lot of different things that were fun community classes, things like that. That just got me to meet new people, have new experiences, try new things, figure out if I liked them or didn't like them. Um, I got a bike, so I ride my bike quite a bit. Um, and I was just active in a, a way that didn't feel like I had to train. It was like, I just enjoy moving my body like this. And it also is keeping me healthy. So that was kind of where I, I pivoted as far as when my time was off, just focusing on those things. And if you don't hit 10,000 steps what happens or is it a non-negotiable you have to every day so initially so for me um i tend to walk a lot and it's something that has a lot it allows me to decompress um so it's a stress management tool for sure i also find that it helps me be more creative so sometimes like if you're sitting at a desk if you work at a desk a lot you can kind of feel like you're going to run your head into the ground trying to focus on the task and you're like, it's not computing in your brain the way that you want it to be, especially if I'm writing something for my book um, or writing email sequences for you guys or creating some type of guide. Um, it's There comes a point where my creation station just kind of halts. And so when I move or you know go for a walk or whatever it is, like I tend it tends to channel that creativity for me. So I actually found that to be to be very helpful in my own productivity. And I say that because 10,000 steps is kind of an arbitrary number. There's a lot of research that shows uh, correlations to longevity and cardiovascular health just from steps and walking, which is wildly underrated. And most Americans, because uh, I think the research is mostly in the United States, um, though I'm sure there's some now that's expanded into other countries, about 7,500 steps is what most people should get on a daily basis for longevity and health purposes. So for me, I knew that I was already averaging about 10,000 steps in general. So it was just more of a goal to be consistent in my daily movement, plus or minus a thousand, 2000 steps. Like if there was a day I was sick or down, like I wouldn't force myself to get 10,000 steps, right? So paying attention to your body, because your body knows more than you think it does. It's interesting to me, especially with contest prep, you learn to suppress your own hunger signaling and focus on numbers and times. Right. And so a big thing for me was I got very comfortable feeling hungry because I had dissociated that from being a human need for me. So I never struggled with kind of overeating or going off track. Like I was disciplined to a point where that level of rigidity was negative for myself because I got so dysregulated, dysregulated with hunger and satiety that I was just kind of numb to it, um, which is 
an interesting experience, but nonetheless, I, I spent a lot of time getting back into focusing on, I'm hungry. I'm going to eat now. It's okay to eat now, right? I'm full. You can stop eating even if the plate's not done, right? So it's one of those things where I, I just had to figure out how do I fundamentally re-ingrain my own natural kind of physiological signals and then honor them. Does that You're answer so your question? Yes, yes. You answered them all. I don't think I have many more. I feel like I expand a lot. So I'm like, I hope that answered the question. No, yeah. <laughs> so, no, um, you, you nailed it. All of them. Thank you. Um, yeah, of course. But I mean, I've said it since the beginning. You've always been inspiring to me. So. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm a clusterfuck of my own chaos. So we all have our shit. <laughs> Um, I'm not ever going to be someone that pretends that I don't, or I haven't struggled or, you know, had my own issues with my own health and fitness journey. Cause like I've, I've said this before, but people, it's sad to me, people come in the door for health and fitness and they walk out kind of fucked up and dysregulated. So I think a lot of it, even for you is just getting back in tune with I'm hungry. It's okay to eat. I'm full. I don't have to finish that. Right. There's no food that is inherently good or bad. Um, and I think managing emotions and being able to incorporate behaviors of better stress management, um, and finding ways that to fuel and move your body in ways that feel good to you that don't feel like I have to, I should, I must, um, because that again, is just kind of like a stakeholder mentality of inflicting judgment on the value of the person that you are based on the check marks that you hit throughout the day. And while I think it's important to have non-negotiable standards and things that you achieve because it moves you closer to where you want to be doing it from a place of I'm serving my future self because I, I I deserve to find out all that it is that I can achieve. And this is the path to me achieving it versus one that is you aren't good enough. So therefore you have to do these things to be seen as good enough, right? It's all about the, the intention. And I've said this to you before, when it comes to specific questions, it's like, well, what is the psychology behind that behavior? Like what is the driving force? If it's one that is positive reinforcement is truly fulfilling for you to pursue, um, then you should do it. And if it's one that is out of kind of restriction, limitations, stakeholder ideas, or uh, external validation or self-hatred, then it's it's probably not going to sustain you long-term and will probably do more harm than good. Yeah. Yeah. Mine, I mean, mindset's everything. And if you can shift it, you know, for me, baby steps, you know, not changing everything at once, but if you truly change your mindset and trust is my big thing can be a good thing. It can be a fucking great thing. Yeah. And we're just getting started. Oh, this is going to be amazing guys. I, um, I hope that you took some value from this. If you guys have more questions based on what I've shared, you can always reach out and I'm pretty much an open book. So <laughs> ask away. Uh, but Danielle, I appreciate you coming on and having this conversation and having the courage to jump on here and ask me all the questions. And I'm sure you did just phenomenally guys. If you're listening to this, reach out to Danielle, tell her that she did awesome. She was a little bit nervous to come on here today. Um, but she, uh, asked some very good questions and I, uh, I do very much appreciate that and hope that it helps. Yes. Thank you.